I'm Barbara Bray. Welcome to my Rethinking Learning podcast, where I have conversations with inspirational educators, thought leaders, and change agents. Oh, I have someone so special here today. I have Carrie Herod. I've known Carrie for so long, and I can't, I'm just so excited to have you here, Carrie. Oh, thanks, Barbara. I'm excited. I've been looking forward to this for actually months, months. Uh, oh, <laughs> we shouldn't have. That's right. We had to wait a little bit. Well, before I start, I love to boast a little bit about you. Will that be okay? Oh, sure. Sure. <laughs> okay. Carrie Herod started as an elementary teacher, was a gifted specialist for 19 years, spent 10 years as an instructional technology specialist for Forest Hills School District in Ohio. And, you know, that's where I met you. That is where we met. It uh, was in uh, 2006? 2006. Uh, and I, I, I want to say, Barbara, and you changed my life. I mean, you were, so, that was a very scary time in my life because I had shifted positions. And you came in and worked with myself as well as some other folks in, in coaching. And you just, you really laid a nice foundation for the work that I was going to do with the staff in my school district. So um, you're dear to my heart right now and always. <laughs> oh, well, Carrie, I, when I met you, Okay, this is a love fest. Because, I'm sorry, everybody. We just have to do this. But when I, as, as soon as I met Carrie, uh, it was just like we known each other forever. Yes. And I knew we were going to be friends for a long time. So, And then in 2016, Carrie decided to reenter the classroom where it all began. And now you're in your 30th year in I education. Am. I am. I am. I I think I said to you, I, I love my story. Um, I, I guess most people probably do love their stories. And uh, returning back to the classroom, which I'm sure we'll talk about, was just a huge decision for me, but absolutely the best decision I've ever made. So. Hopefully oh, we'll and we that. are going to talk about that. Good. Welcome, Carrie. Thank I'm you. so, I, I just know that this is uh, just the beginning of an, another part of our friendship. Absolutely. And I'm so glad I can share our friendship with the world. This is wonderful. So I always like to start with kind of how, you know, where you grew up and what your life was like growing up. Yeah, I grew up in Bowling Green, Ohio. I loved it. I loved everything about that small town life. You know, we had Bowling Green State University there. So it always made it feel bigger, I think, than it actually is. Um, but I just had that idyllic life, you know, with uh, I owned a horse and rode all over town and we biked all over town. Those were the days where you could just be free all day long and not see mom and dad for, you know, 12 hours and everything was cool. And so I just had a great uh, upbringing. I had twin brothers and a sister, and it was kind of magical. I often think that, um, you know, if uh, at some point in life, will I end up back in Bowling Green? I'm not sure. But I also, I've lived in uh, Cincinnati now for 30 years, and I love it there too. So I've gotten a little bit of taste of a, of a larger city, and that's been nice also. Wow. I always think of Ohio, Kentucky, the the rolling green mm -hmm. blue grass and 
riding a horse. Oh, it just sounds beautiful. It is. It is beautiful. I, the country, you know, the the land formations and everything in Cincinnati to me are just beautiful. And it's a nice size city too. You know, it's not super large, but you still get that feel of a large city. Oh, that's nice because mm-hmm. you can. Ha- You've lived in a small town, big city, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about where you're going next. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know you. You're probably going to be, your life is constantly changing, and it's been wonderful. Yeah. Well, then you, tell me about your family right so, now, your family. Yeah. So I am married to Bill. Uh, he is a banker. He is my greatest cheerleader and has really been instrumental in helping me to be brave. I, I often refer to myself kind of as a, as a scaredy cat. I don't know if that's from being, you know, uh, uh, being brought up in a smaller town or whatever. But he's just been that person behind me that has really supported me this whole way through. And then we have a 21-year-old son who just graduated from Ohio State University. And he's awesome also, uh, extremely talented. Um, and I'm just, I'm super proud of him. He's he's definitely a, has that entrepreneurial spirit about him. And I, and I embrace that completely. And his name is? That's Liam. Liam Herod. Oh, <laughs> uh, I saw a picture. We're going to put a picture up of the three of you somehow because okay. uh, he's okay. darling. Uh-huh. Uh, and he graduated. He wow. did. He did. And so he's it, he's got some online gigs going on. And um, I just think it's a fascinating time to be a 21-year-old in terms of that entrepreneurial spirit and, you know, kind of carving out new pathways that weren't there when, you know, I was his age. And so both my husband and I fully embrace him and just um, the, the thoughts that he has in his head about how he wants his life to go. So um, we're, we're having fun watching him right now and kind of living vicariously through him oh that's fun yeah it is it is neat to watch them grow up Mm -hmm. mine are much older and I have a granddaughter so you know every time of the life of being a parent is exciting Uh, scary sometimes but Uh exciting too yes absolutely so when you were young what was it like for you to be a student well uh, you know, I have the fondest of memories, um, I would say, you know, from kindergarten all the way up to about seventh grade. And I was a good student. I loved school. I loved learning. I loved my teachers. I um, I can name each of my elementary teachers. And, and each one of them um, gave to me just a certain piece that I carry with me every day that I walk back into that classroom. And they're, they're wonderful pieces. Like my fourth grade teacher was really the person that um, taught me to love reading. My second grade teacher, Mrs. Draney, she was that person that you just want to hug. Like I remember, I just wanted her to hug me. She was so loving and you wanted to be in her presence. So I carry all those different pieces with me and try to be um, kind of an amalgamation of all of those teachers uh, for my own students. So it was it was really good. I loved it. And um, kind of coinciding, I think, with adolescence lessons. Um, I got into junior high school and something just really flipped. And I'm sure it has a lot to do with, you know, becoming a teenager. But it was about that time that I discovered for the first time that I 
I couldn't move forward and it was in math, it was in algebra. And I just, I hit like a brick wall and it was kind of like no matter what I did, I couldn't get past that wall. And that's where I received my very first D. And I, rem- I, I so clearly, I mean, that was so many years ago, but I so clearly remember that a, a light switch went off for me. It, it, I think I convinced myself I wasn't very smart. And so from then on, all all the way through high school, even into college, um, I really struggled with just my my belief in myself that I could do it. And I when I had to take some math courses in college, I struggled there also and kept hitting that brick wall. And so I had a even though I was excited about being a teacher, I had this certain feeling inside that I think I was lost. I think I didn't really understand what learning was. I didn't see myself as a smart person. And as I look back on that, often I often think that that is also a catalyst to why I wanted to go into teaching because I really felt as though we had a system that worked for some, for sure, but not for all and not for many. And although I'm not sure I could have ever articulated that in my first, say, 20 years in education, it's come to me, um, I, everything just kind of happens late for me. And so it came to me fairly late um, that the reason I had gotten into teaching was because I wanted to see if learning could look differently. And it certainly, you know, as I finish up my career, it certainly has led me down that path to be able to have some impact with that. So, you know, when you brought up math or algebra, mm-hmm. uh, that anytime you struggle, this is where we need that, you know, Vygotsky zone of proximal development. That's where we need the support and all those wonderful teachers you had in elementary school we need those teachers to help guide us. Yeah, right? and I, th- I think you're right. I think, too, that it's around that time, around 7th, 8th grade, where we need that even, I'm not even going to say even more so, because I think those formative years are so important also. But and, and because of the structure that we have, I think that diminishes. I think it's kind of lost, and you become more lost. It's bigger. Everything's bigger. There's more people. And I think, truly, like I said, I think I just became lost in that whole system. I remember, like, I, uh, this is something I don't admit to many people, and here I am admitting it, but I never went past Algebra 1. My high school did not expect you to back then, and so I, to this day, I never got past Algebra 1, and I'm, I'm ashamed of that. But I remember I had the option to keep taking more math, and I opted not to. And I think, to my own detriment, I think that there have been, you know, when I've taught math, you know, to elementary students, I think there's missing pieces there that I don't have. And that's always really bothered me. So, um, again, just kind of really seeking um, a different way of looking at learning. Mm-hmm. Well, I had a similar experience because I had some learning disabilities or some kind of, I don't know, a disability was never really re- recognized, but I had some of the same problems around math. And I love math now. Mm-hmm. I, do I, too. I, I just love be- because of me, I had to work with math teachers mm-hmm. and they opened the world of math and how beautiful it is to me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see it before. If there's only, and I was a middle school teacher. So if only, I didn't teach math though. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it it's just, if we can open that world of learning 
earlier and all the way through when they struggle. Mm-hmm. So give them the challenges that get them, you know, that's relevant and meaningful for them. It's so exciting. Yes. Yeah. And it also, and I'm sure we'll get into this, it kind of brings me back as I'm talking to you to, you know, the things I believe in, which is that uh, in learner agency and having helping kids to have some ownership over that. Because as I think back, I didn't really have ownership. And so therefore, and of course, there was no internet. So therefore, when I didn't understand, there was basically one person at that point that I could go to to help me understand. And when that didn't work, I don't think I felt as though I had any other options. Were there other options? Yes, I'm sure there were. But at that point, I didn't feel that way. And how do we open up pathways for all kids so that if one mode doesn't work, we can then give them more modes so that they can they can open up to um, understanding algebra or whatever it is um, and not just kind of stop learning then or, or thinking of themselves as anything less. Well, you know, now you can look back and now your journey as a teacher, that probably guided you. So tell me a little bit more about your journey as a teacher. So I, and this is why I love my story, you know, just, I'm not a huge risk taker at all. It's kind of interesting to me that I've um, had the guts to to move forward as I have. And to other people, I'm sure it seems like nothing, but to me, it's huge. It's, you know, I was in third grade, I was a third grade teacher and for, I think about seven years, then I moved to fourth grade with my class and looped and it was fabulous, a fabulous experience. Then I had my, I was in fourth grade for about two years. And then I had my son and I decided that I couldn't be a classroom teacher anymore just because it, man, it is, it is, you're all in, you have to be all in. And so a position as the gifted specialist came open and it's not that I wasn't all in, it's just a different kind of all in. And um, so I was gifted specialist for 10 years and boy, did I learn just a lot. I think uh, it opened up my mind, not just to, you know, high ability learners, but really and truly the fact that we are all different and that we do need different things and that that's okay, that that's not a bad thing. And that I was on this mission um, with the kids that I was working with at that point to figure out how to offer um, experiences that better met their needs. And so, so I was in there for 10 years and loved every minute of it. And at about the time, I guess it was probably about 2005, I was absolutely classify I would be classified as a technophobe I um, <laughs> I remember going to a Photoshop uh, workshop and I'm telling you after five minutes I had no idea what they were talking about I could and it kind of goes back to that algebra thing that um, kind of that logical thinking of how to you know edit a photograph and the layers and everything like that and so but I also, that was about the time that we started getting computers, and I remember something just clicked inside me that told me that that this this machine had potential. And I don't think, again, I could have articulated what that was, but it was just a feeling I had. So I just started really, you know, using more technology, understanding it, and most of all, just reading and reading and reading as much as I could. So 
Anyways, fast forward, 2006, the district asks me to lead a project with, um, it would be over five years, and it would be about 100 teachers from across the district each year. So, you know, you can, you can do the math and see it was a lot of teachers in which we would start really looking at technology. And, um, at, you know, if you think back to 2006, we were still really, I think now, almost ahead of our time um, in terms of looking at technology and what it can do for learning. I think it was so much more about just the technical aspect of how to use a computer. And there I was, as I learned more and more about how it can support learning, talking about things that I'm not sure anybody even, like, what's this lady talking about? I have no idea. So I spent I spent 10 years in that position, and boy, was it the training of a lifetime. I, you know, I had the opportunity to work with you extensively, worked with uh, Cheryl Nussbaum Beach and Will Richardson in their uh, powerful learning practice. And I just, it just changed me. It changed how I, actually how I became a learner was through, you know, the technology itself and um, just becoming really and truly attuned to that idea of personal learning networks. And it totally changed learning for me. Well, it was fun seeing where you're going. I just wanted to say, last year I was in Cincinnati at a workshop with Marsha Kish. Uh-huh. Yeah. And a whole bunch of your team was there. And they pulled me aside and they said, you have to talk to Carrie. Yes, they told me they saw you. Yes, yeah, yes. They, they were, and they were telling me how you've changed. You went back in the classroom. So we're going to go there. Good. Okay. Good. Yes. Because I think what's really neat is the, to watch your journey and to be able to talk about some of the things. And now, you know, the with the world changing so much and technology now is all integral, and in fact, it's probably changing the whole world. Mm-hmm. And now we have to prepare our kids. Um, there are some things that you mentioned to me about reading and writing. That changes. Can you just explain a little bit about that? Yes. Um, it was probably about, let's see, 2013, I'm thinking, when I kind of um, was introduced to the idea of personalized learning. And it's been around forever. And, and, and as I did my research, I, you know, I read all sorts of things about it. But um, for me, one of the reasons maybe it didn't catch, or, you know, uh, uh, catch on was more about that, that idea of the, the one teacher in the classroom and then, you know, the 30 kids or the 28 kids there. And so I, I inherently knew that the technology had something to do with that. I wasn't really sure what, um, because I just had never really, uh, well, especially as a teacher, I really hadn't used it and used it well with kids and to support learning. Um, and so I started really wondering about how, if, if the world's changing this quickly, if technology is helping us to uh, learn, because now we have access to information 24-7, what does that mean in the classroom to the idea of reading and writing? And I chose that because that's always kind of been my love, was reading and writing, maybe because of, you know, the experiences I had had with math. 
Um, but I just was really interested in what that looked like uh, paired with kind of those ideals behind personalized learning because I also knew pretty early on that it really wasn't about the technology itself. It was really about what the technology could do for learning. And that's where my interest became. So I spent about four months with um, a sixth grade teacher in our district, Hannah Hill. And it was fascinating. We just really started digging into, I kind of moved in with her, and we just started digging into reading and writing. And when you have this device, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean? when, you know, you can do your writing um, on a word processor, but beyond that, um, what does it mean when you can share your writing with people from around the world? What does it mean when, um, you know, like we introduce blogging to the kids? But also, uh, you know, back to that personalized learning is how do you start utilizing the technology to form um, more of a, a relationship with the kids that's more as co-designers of their learning, of giving them much more agency in what they're doing. So I did that for about four months. This was when I was still back at the district level. And it was through that experience that I really decided I had five more years to go before I could retire. This was back in 2016. And I just decided something hit me one day, and it really truly was like that one day, I was like, uh, I need to go back to the classroom. I had been working with teachers um, around kind of the beginning concepts of personalized learning, but I, because I hadn't been really in the classroom, I start, I started to kind of feel almost like, um, um, like I, I had a mask on because I could talk to the teachers about personalized learning, but I really hadn't done it myself. And so I knew to be more authentic, I needed to go in the classroom and see if everything I was saying was possible. And so that's what I did. I decided I really, I love, I love being with teachers very much so, um, but m my favorite place of all is to be with young human beings and, and just what they bring to that classroom every single day is just just, it's wonderful and I love it. And so I decided to go back in 2016. So I've been back for about two and a half years. And that's kind of where I am right now in that journey. And I just look back at every step of that journey has led me to this place. And I often, you know, just as we all do in our careers, should I be going off and, you know, doing something else? And But something always niggled in the back of my head that I needed to just stay this course. And, and now I know exactly why I've done that. Well, um, it's, I can tell you as someone who's outside the classroom, I miss the kids. So mm -hmm. I've done some coaching and got to work with the kids and with the teachers. It's really been fun, but it's not the same. Right. So I really love what you're doing. Thank and you. you're talking about, um, you mentioned to me the five elements in your personalized learning and all of those. I'm just going to say them here okay. for you. Yeah. Uh, voice, choice, pace place, and path. So pace, place, and path. And all of those means that each of the children, young through their year, they have a voice and choice in how they learn with you, right? Mm -hmm. And then the pace is depending on where they are with specific tasks and, and skills that they need to have to, to actually do some tasks. Mm -hmm. All yes. right, we're going to... We're going to have to figure out how to talk about that. Okay. okay. Well, let's, let's talk about it because teachers say to me, 
how do you do this with 30 kids or 20 or whatever you have in the class? And they're all at a different pace. Right. Absolutely. And I want to mention that kind of in the center of those five pieces, the voice, choice, pace, place, and path, is the idea of um, a student-directed environment. That, uh, to me, that is one of the things that separates personalized learning from, say, individualized learning or differentiation, is that um, I had mentioned before that the kids and and your co-writers, co-designers of what's happening in that classroom. So that sits kind of in the middle and is and everything goes back to those kids. And I, I see it quite different from, say, um, student-centered um, because I, I believe that they should be directing a lot of what they do. Um, I also want to mention that everything I do is rooted in the standards. So there is a misconception often that we um, just simply let the kids do whatever they want, and that, that is not true at all. Everything is rooted in the standards. And I, I would argue I probably know my standards better than most people because you have to, because you're not, because the kids are going in some different pathways, um, it requires that you really understand that curriculum well. And so so voice and choice is pretty, um, pretty, you know, it, it is what it says, although I think often we don't get dig deep enough into the idea of voice. And so that's something that I've really focused on in understanding, you know, it's not just saying, this is the job I want in the classroom, but it's really setting those kids up to, um, um, to be advocates for themselves, to be able to say, well, this really isn't working for me. And I think I'd like to try this and being okay with that. So that's voice and choice. And then, of course, you know, the place. I mean, we now have the ability to learn anywhere. You don't, and that really levels the playing field hugely. But I think what's happened is most kids don't know how to use technology for learning necessarily, and they they maybe have happened upon it. So for me now, what one of my biggest roles is, is to help them to see how this technology can be used to support their own learning. So that would be, you know, place. It can be in the classroom, but it doesn't have to be. But where are those rich learning opportunities out there for them and helping them to find that? Um, And then, of course, you have, you know, path. To me, pace and path are very uh, closely related. One of the things I remember years ago, uh, Jane Bozarth had said something about the fact that we need to stop thinking about, um, de- you know, creating lesson plans and instead creating experiences. And so what I've done around reading and writing is to create, try to create some um, experiences that my students can have um, in reading and writing and choose whether or not they want to participate that in that. So an example is right now my kids, um, some of them are involved in the Edublog uh, blogging challenge. Amazing, amazing opportunity for kids. And then there's one called the Slice of Life blogging challenge. So some of my kids decided to do that where they have to blog for 30, 30 days in a row. And But I don't make kids do those things. I just offer up lots of different opportunities for real, authentic reading and writing. And then I help them to figure out what pathways they want to go on to grow as a reader and as a writer. Oh, this is wonderful. I think we're going to do some work together on that. I hope so. Because <laughs> I, I have some ideas it. for you. I would love it. Because <clears throat> you did say that your class is, uh, your literacy classroom 
is built on volume, which means it's all about a, that authentic reading and writing. Yeah. Which, you know, who was it? Malcolm Gladwell said that you, you really get become into yourself or around that passion if you put 10,000 hours into it. Yes. We don't give the kids time to really work on those. You well, know? and I think that's where I come from is that, especially by fifth grade, I, I certainly understand in the younger grades that when they're learning how to read, I certainly understand why there needs to be um, more skill work involved. By the time they come to fifth grade, there still are some students that need that. But what I find is that we have... Um, brought into our classrooms a lot of superfluous stuff, stuff to keep them busy so that we can put grades in our grade book. And so what I've tried to do in the past two and a half years is to get rid of all the stuff. And so we really focus just on beautiful literature, beautiful writing, and then everything we do is around that. It is our conversations are around that. Just um, understanding that literature better and deepening our ability to comprehend. So you won't really see tests in my classroom or quizzes. Um, I don't do worksheets. Um, what I'm really intrigued by is the idea, and this has been hard work, the idea that if I have to give a grade, but I don't want the kids just to be doing busy work, where do I get my grade from? And that is a huge shift. And I think that, and I'll be honest, I often want to just go right back to having them do something that is really more mechanical just so that I can get that grade. And I'm not going to lie, I, I do it sometimes. But I'm just really intrigued by, you know, how do you assess a reader and a writer um, based on other things besides worksheets and fill in the blanks and that type of thing. So it's been a fascinating journey for me, and I'm really messing around a lot with we have to give grades in our district, which is fine right now. So how do I make sure that those grades more readily um, reflect who my kids are as readers and as writers? I often say that when my classroom no longer looks like a classroom, I will know I have succeeded because I don't think it has to look like a classroom any longer. Well, you call it a studio. I do call um, the work uh -huh. we do because I, and I coined that term. Actually, I coined that term when, when I was still up at central office. And I was thinking about the work I wanted teachers to do. I wanted them to be like artists who go to a studio to perfect their art. And so I coined that for a lot of our, the PD that I did. I would call it studio. You guys have studio time. You have time to refine your understanding of you as a teacher. So then when I went back in the classroom, same concept. I wanted the kids to think of themselves as true readers, true writers, and have this space where they could grow and deepen their understanding of it. So I've worked with, you know, assessment is a big question on how you do this in this personalized learning environment and where they have uh, no tests, no quizzes, whatever. So what some teachers have, uh, some schools have come up with is sitting with the students and having them say, well, I think I deserve an A. You know, then explaining it, or I deserve a C, I didn't do as well, Would I, can I work, can I redo it? Mm -hmm. I well, like that idea because it's almost like real work. 
Well, you know, it's- man, did you? You hit it right on the nail because that's what we do. So we, I don't use grades throughout the quarter and the semester. I use one, two, three, fours. Um, you know, I mean, certainly you could associate each of those numbers with a grade. But what I'm trying to get away from with the kids is, uh, is that thought process that you get one chance to get it. And if you don't, tough luck. And so by having, you know, ones, twos, threes, fours, I have like this sheet of paper. And so we, when they do something for me, I'll put that in there. And then when it gets close to the quarter and end of the quarter, the end of the semester, we have a conference and we take a look. And what I'm much more interested in isn't how many twos they have versus how many fours or threes. It's really about the growth. So a lot is dated so that they can say, yeah, well, on this type of thing, this, this response to reading that we were doing in the beginning, I wasn't doing so well. I was doing a one or a two, but look at these last three, um, I got threes and fours. Well, isn't that who I should be grading? Is that person right there, right then, not the person back at the beginning of the quarter? And so it's beautiful. And again, it's back to that. They're co-owners of this. My kids will talk to you about their learning. Um, I mean, it's fascinating to listen to them. I know I never spoke about my learning the way my kids do. And it's because I have made them the, the, the co, the co-bosses in my classroom. And it's, it's wonderful. And it, uh, Will Richardson wrote a, a blog post on the, that we never talk about learning as beautiful. And I think learning is absolutely beautiful, not necessarily in the traditional form, but you come walk in my classroom and you will absolutely see the most beautiful learning you've ever seen. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to get a quote like that for you because yes. that's, even though that Will said that, it's uh-huh. like the way you're doing that is mm-hmm. beautiful. Yes. And what you're mentioning co-owners, but what they're doing, if they're actually watching their learning grow, and then they're assessing it themselves. Mm-hmm. They own it. Yes, they do. They're, and that's where it should be because it's their own learning. And that's the, for, for so long, people are trying to get what is personalized learning. And there's been all iterations of it where it was the technology. And now you're, you're using technology, but you're using it with the idea that it's all about the learning, not learning the tech. Absolutely. If you walk in my mm-hmm. classroom, you will not see, I usually in the beginning of the year will do some just kind of exploring some of the tools out there so that they know what's out there. But I, I tell them it's like a tool belt and that, you know, we don't pick up a hammer and say, what am I going to do with this today? So I want them really thinking about the goals of their learning and then which tool will best uh, facilitate that learning. And so it's, I mean, we use our computers quite a bit, but it's not just to go, you know, and uh, do skill and drill type of things. It's really and truly to do the work that readers and writers do. And mm-hmm. I think that's so important. So, um, oh my gosh, Carrie, I could talk to you all day about I this. I could talk to you. Because, <laughs> I mean, the whole idea is, one, you're very brave going back into the classroom after 30 years or up to this time. Yes. And I, I've, you know, there have been many moments I've, sat there and going, what am I doing? I want to be back in the classroom. It's just what we need to do because a lot of times people in district office or administrators forget. Mm -hmm. They forget because, you know, there's such a disconnect with 
all the mandates and all the initiatives and everything that's out there yeah. that we forget that it's really all about the kids and how they right. learn. Well, and think mm-hmm. about it. I mean, I was probably out too long. I was uh, in central office for 10 years. And while it was absolutely wonderful and I learned so much and I, I think everybody should have that opportunity to be pulled out and see things from another perspective. Um, going back in, you're right, though. It was one of the bravest things I've ever done. And it was scary um, being out that long for 10 years like I was out all during the when the standards came into place and the big emphasis on testing I was out so jumping back wait a minute I gotta say aren't you glad (laughs) yes I guess I (laughs) was that was was a hard time Um, but it was it it takes a lot of bravery and I um I have said uh, over and over again to anybody that will uh, listen that's an administrator is we need to rethink how we're utilizing the expertise of our teachers um because they are in the trenches. They know what it feels like every single day. And um, they, we need to be listening to them because they're, they're wise and they have a lot to offer. Well, you have a lot to offer and I have to bring this to a close. Oh, but darn you, it. <laughs> I know. I want to keep going. This has been wonderful. Oh, Carrie, I, 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 you know how I feel about teachers. Mm-hmm. I'm a very big advocate. Yes, you I feel are. So, but I feel you know, sad for so many who feel like they're, it's a tough time if they can just see it in a different lens. And I think you've opened that. I can't wait to share this with the world and the teachers and and administrators so they can see how you've done this. And we're going to put pictures of your classroom. We're going to make a post together. I think they're going to love it. That's awesome. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. I love talking about this, not, not like an egocentric way, but because it is the most fascinating work I've ever done. And I hope what you said, I want to inspire teachers who are really feeling heavy right now to know that, you know, it's still heavy and I'm working harder than I've ever worked before, but there's something so gorgeous about it. And can we rediscover what that is? Okay. On that note, Oh, Carrie, thank you so much. Thank you, Barbara. This has been a wonderful experience, wonderful conversation. Thank Thank you. you. Bye now. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Rethinking Learning podcast and my conversation with Carrie Herod. Look for a complimentary blog post about Carrie, and that's where we put together resources, pictures, links, and more for you. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on iTunes. We'd love it if you tweet out the post with the hashtag Rethink underscore learning. And then you can also subscribe to my website, barbarabray.net, and that's where you'll receive announcements and updates so you don't miss any of the conversations.